When I lived in Australia, there were times when we'd go on what we would call a bushwalk. Now, the closest equivalent in Malaysia is jungle trekking. Right? You go through a walk through a, something uh, in the middle of nowhere and enjoy the scenery as you, as you walk along. Now, the only jungle trekking I've done is through the concrete jungle of KL. But imagine you're going to go on a jungle trek. Going on foot will enable you to savour all the sights of that part of the jungle. You'll see every bit of the terrain as you go along. But to get to the part of the jungle that you want to go to, you might need to take a bit of a shortcut. You might not start your journey on foot. Maybe what you'll do is you take a helicopter ride from where you are to the start of the track that you want to go along. Now, we're about to start a new series on Genesis 12 to 25, the life of Abraham. That is a track that we're going to go along. Which means we can't really stop and look at all the interesting things that we would like to look at. Maybe we'll fly a little bit low over one patch or two, right, and then we'll move on. So that we can... Ready to start Genesis 12 next week. As we do that, we'll still grasp, we'll still, we'll still work through uh, this part of the Bible, work out what God is saying to us here, uh, and what the implications are uh, for our lives. Just go back a little bit so I can see the people on this side. Okay, we'll start at Genesis 1. Now, most people here would be at least familiar with this passage. Of Genesis 1. Alright, if not, please do go ahead and read it at home. It's a passage that talks about creation. And there's many things we learn about creation from this passage. First thing we do is that we learn that the creation is a work of one God. That is very, very important. Alright, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It is not several gods. Not a pantheon of gods behind creation, in contrast to what other religions in the ancient world believed, and some religions still believe today. There's not a multitude of gods, but there is one God, and He created. There are no gods, no other beings in the same league as He is. There may be other spiritual beings, but they're not His equal. They belong to the realm of created things. You identify the true God as the one who created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created. And second, we know that God created everything that exists. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything. If you were to paint a beautiful picture, we could say, oh, look, you're, you're the creator of the picture. Or if you're smart enough to make a robot... And you can say, well, you're the creator of the robot. But even then, what you've been doing is taking things that are already in existence and rearranging them to make something new. But God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. He gave existence to everything that exists. Our Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 4, 11, verse 11, that, that everything was created by His will. He, he, he gives existence to everything. Without Him... Nothing would exist. Everything that is not God was created by God. Heavens and the earth. 
The third thing we notice is that the creator is not the creation. God created the heavens and the earth. God is not the heavens and the earth. Creation is not God. We must not confuse the two. See, in some religious systems, everything is God. God is everything. So you can find God in a tree. You can find God in a leaf. You can, if you look closely enough, you might even find God in yourself. But friends, that is a classical mistake, isn't it? That is one of the worst things that we can do as creatures. To worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. And even today we can make that mistake. We can do it in a materialistic way. By worshipping and serving money or career or possessions, making that God most important thing in our lives. We can make it in a religious way by, by fashioning images and, and worshipping idols. We can bow down to things that are not God, but uh, things like pictures and statues, whether they be of Kwong Yim or Ganesh or Mary or even Jesus. And we can make this mistake in a falsely spiritual way by, by looking for God within ourselves or in nature. If we look for God in ourselves, the only God we find is a projection of ourselves. Not the God who made the heavens and the earth. The real God. Creation declares God's glory. It testifies to his greatness. But it's not God. It doesn't confuse the creator and the creation. And the fourth thing we observe in Genesis 1 is that God created by his word. He spoke. And it was done. At each stage of the creation process, in chapter 1, verse 3, he says, let there be light. And there was light. In chapter 1, verse 6, he says, let there be an expanse. And there was an expanse. Etc., etc. On each of the days of creation. Psalm 33, verse 6 says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. The starry host by the breath of his mouth. God spoke and the whole universe is created. His God is powerful. His word is powerful. And his word always accomplishes his purposes. And the fifth thing we become aware of as we look at the passage is that God created in a purposeful and orderly way. Creation is a process. Depicted here as a six-day process. Whether they're literal 24-hour days or six long ages, as the Hebrew could well mean, it doesn't really matter. What's important is that creation is a process. You see, God could have created everything at one go, bang. But he didn't. He did it step by step, in a logical and orderly way. It's a process that had a definite beginning. The universe doesn't, hasn't always existed. In the beginning, God created and it's a process that leads to a goal. A process that was good in every stage. Because the passage keeps repeating, and God saw it was good after each day in the process. And God was in control each step of the way. God spoke, God said, and it was so. So this is not a random process. Now that doesn't mean God couldn't have used apparent randomness on a micro level to, 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 to create purposeful process on a macro level. 
But what it is saying is that the, the universe is not an accident. This world is not just a lucky chance. You are not a fluke. You're not just a collection of atoms that happen to come together in a particular time, in a particular way. You and I are part of God's creation. Made by Him. For a purpose. Part of God's orderly creation. Part of a plan. And God's plan is very good. And so the sixth thing we note is that human beings are the pinnacle of the creation. In fact, each day in the, in the creation account, God looks and he says it is good. And then on the last day, or on the sixth day, when, cre- when human beings are created, in verse 31, God saw everything he had made and behold, it was very good. Human beings, we, we are part of the creation. Right? In the creation, the creator-creation divide, we are firmly on the creation side. We are made by God. We are creatures. Made on the same day as the other animals. But there is something that distinguishes us from the other animals. Verse 26 to 28. Genesis 1. God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his image. The image of God he created him, male and female who created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. We are made, male and female, in God's image. Or another way of translating it, actually, would be to say we were made to be God's image. Now, what does it mean to be made in God's image, or to be God's image? Lots of people got different ideas about this, and you've probably heard some of them, but as far as I can see, the one thing that the text here actually associates being made in God's image with is rulership, isn't it? Look at it again, verse 26, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the birds of the sea, etc., etc. That is, we were made to rule this earth as God's representatives. Not to abuse it, but to take care of it and look after it as, as God does. We haven't done a good job of it. In fact, we've done a pretty pathetic job of it, actually. And we'll see why in chapter 3. But being made to rule as God's representatives, that's, that's what we're for. Male and female, equally, made in God's image together. And friends, that, that is a high honor indeed, isn't it? For being part of a creation that is chosen to bear the image of the Creator and to exercise His authority over the rest of creation, that's, that's an incredible privilege. It's, it's a privilege that you and I and indeed, every human being on the face of this earth have been, have been made to share. And so we must treat everyone, regardless of race or color or creed or social standing, with dignity, because we are made in God's image. And been given the awesome task of representing the Creator on this planet. Later on, of course, as we go through the scriptures, 
we discover, well, in fact, we've just done that, haven't we? You look at Colossians. And what did Colossians say about Jesus? He is the image of the invisible God. He's actually everything that humans were made to be. And he's a true ruler, a true king, who reigns over everything. That's going forward. Let's stick to Genesis 1. Final thing to notice is God's work culminates in rest. In fact, Genesis 2, verse 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all this work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all the work he had done in creation. So God has been working. Now you think just speaking and it's done, you think that's not work? Well, that's work. Alright? God has been working in creation. God is a worker, and no wonder work is built in to us. We need to work. Not necessarily paid work, but we need to do things. We need to achieve things. We need to accomplish things. But the climax, not the anti-climax, the climax of God's work is rest. Isn't that interesting? The end point, the thing that the whole of creation, one, two, three, four, five, six, is all going to is rest on the seventh day. God's rest. Now, I don't think we're meant to read this literalistically. It's not literal rest, like God is tired, you know, I've been working, It is stopping to enjoy the creation that he has made. And by blessing the seventh day and making it holy, God, God invites human beings to join with him in that rest. See, the seventh day is a picture of God and human beings enjoying together, taking it easy in an unspoiled creation. The picture of relaxation in relationship. But notice the seventh day is a day that doesn't end. With all the other days of creation, it talks about evening and morning, evening, definitely beginning, definitely end, and then not so with the seventh day. In fact, God's stress, this, this relaxation in relationship, as the book of Hebrews points out, that remains available for the people of God. We're going to see that rest pictured in Genesis 2 where the man and the woman have an undamaged relationship with God. We'll see it destroyed in Genesis 3 when people rebel against God. That rest is pictured in Israel's history when she's in the land and God grants them rest from the enemies around, enjoying the favor of God, blessing in the land. But that rest would not be restored until the coming of the Lord of the Sabbath. The Lord of the rest, Jesus Christ, who said to me, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that rest will be experienced in its fullness in the new creation, in the new heaven and the new earth. That is the eternal rest God will enjoy with all his people. And so for us, What's the implication? Well, the answer, the biggest question is, are we part of that seventh day? Are we, are we enjoying a positive relationship with God that's going to last for eternity? Will we be with Him forever and enjoy His presence forever? That's what that rest points to. If we need God's rest, we come to Jesus. And we trust in Him who died to, to bring us into that rest. To make us God's people. In positive relationship with him forever.
That's a side point for those who are already trusting in Jesus and waiting to experience that eternal rest and still think it's a good idea to apply this passage by taking a day off each week. God expects us to work. He doesn't expect us to work seven days. We're working more than six days a week. We're working more than God expects us to. Working more than we're designed to. Remember from last week, Colossians. We work to serve him, don't we? And he says, take a day off. Take a day off. No, sometimes it's hard. But God, God knows. He's the one who's created us. We'll function best if we do. I know people would smack who've said to their job interviewers, okay, sorry, not prepared to work on Sundays. Vote for jobs with less pay, less prestige. Because of that. I think that's great. Do that. Now, of course, some jobs you can't do that. All right? If you're a doctor, patients get sick on Sundays, so you've got to take a turn looking after them. Get another rest day another day. Yeah. Because taking a day off each week is not just it's not just utilitarian. It's a symbolic taste of heaven. It's a sign that reminds us where our future lies. We belong to that rest. We belong to the seventh day. It tells us there's more to life than work. Don't be legalistic about what you can and can't do. Like the Pharisees made the thing even work with harder day than any others. But, but if you're not getting a day off each week, then then start. All right? God could take a seventh day rest, and then you can as well. They go to chapter two of Genesis. In chapter two, God God us, paints us a picture of a garden, Eden. And from that garden, rivers water the whole earth. The picture is, this is a place of blessing, that, that causes blessing all over the place. And in the garden, God plants trees for the enjoyment of humankind. Uh, in the middle of the garden, there is this tree of the knowledge and good and evil, and this tree of life. Man, which in Hebrew is Adam, is in the garden to look after it. And there is one command from God, verse 16 and 17, You may eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge and good and e- of e- good and evil you shall not eat from the day you eat for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Uh, no mention of an apple. Oh, that's an advertiser's myth. Uh, Eden probably side of that, no. What man was allowed to do was to eat of the tree of, of any any tree except this tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, I can't be really exactly sure what this knowledge of good and evil is meant to mean, but I think the most likely thing, and I think this is consistent with the rest of the passage, is that knowing good and evil is linked with determining good and evil for oneself. That is, that is God's prerogative. He decides what is good and what is evil. Um, if you look in, uh, in, uh, under the temptation in, in verse, in chapter 3, uh, verse, um, Verse 6, see the woman saw that saw the tree was good for food. And it was light of the eye and she takes some and she ate. Remember, up to this point everyone it is God who says it is good. Right? And now she's saying, oh, this is good. So I think that knowledge of good and evil is, is determining uh, for oneself what is good and what is evil. But that is the job of God. 
Uh, he's the one who pronounces it. And what is good is actually what is consistent with his good character. It's not for us to, to decide and make, make it up for ourselves. Now, God does decide what is good and what is evil, but he does it in a way that is beneficial for the human. He, he exercises rulership in a loving and thoughtful way. In fact, he says in the very next verse of chapter 2, in verse chapter 2, verse 18, he says, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. See, he's, he's being thoughtful. He's, he's doing it in a way that's for his creation, for his, his people. And so the search starts for a suitable helper. It starts with the animals, and Adam names them, thus exercising dominion over them. But a suitable helper is not found among the animals. How could it be? This is a great gulf between humans and animals. And so God makes a woman from Adam's own body and brings her to him. And Adam is delighted. He calls her woman. Because she's like man. She's from man. She's the same. See, the animals were different. But for the woman, she's the same. She's made, made from the same stuff. Right? It's not, 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 not something else. Not different in the, in the depths of their being. And so he says in verse 23, This at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And so when a man and a woman get married, they express this oneness in a sexual way. In verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife are both naked and not ashamed. The relationship was perfectly open, perfectly clear, no hint of anything that could, that could spoil it. So Genesis 2 teaches a number of things. It's a foundational chapter in the Bible. It sets up God's pattern. Because, you see, this is what it was like. And this is what it's meant to be like. Now, before sin comes into the picture. It sets a pattern for relationship with God and each other. So the first thing we see is, well, it's God's kindness, isn't it, to humanity. Uh, before he demands anything from the man, he placed him in the garden. This beautiful garden is prepared for him. The trees, it says in verse 9, pleasing to the eye, good for food. God didn't need to make it nice for human beings, but, but he did. It wasn't the man who complained he was lonely. Finding a suitable helper was God's initiative. Even his command not to eat from the tree of knowledge and good of evil, that wasn't a difficult one. It wasn't meant to be. God was kind, he was good, he was the ruler, the boss in charge who ruled in love. Secondly, we see that God rules humanity by his word. We saw in chapter 1 that God's word brought everything into existence. Now he continues to rule by his word. He tells the man what to do. See, God is not silent. He doesn't just leave it up to the man to guess what he wants from him. He doesn't just give him intuition so he feels what God wants from him. He doesn't leave him with no instructions or commands. He clearly says, this is what I expect. And friends, that's still the same today, isn't it? God is not silent. He tells us clearly in his word what he expects from us. He doesn't expect us to guess his will. He doesn't expect us to feel his will. He's spoken to us in his word and we read it in the Bible. God, the ruler, rules by his word. That is what he's like. Genesis 2 sets up the pattern for it. The third thing we see here is about marriage. Marriage is an important institution. It's a creation institution. It's not something that 
just human beings decided to make up. It's made by God. And marriage is created by God to be between one man and one woman. See, God's prototype here is foundational. It's not between one man and several women. Okay? It's Adam and Eve. Not Adam and Eve and Sarah and Jane and Lakshmi and Maymay. Right? And it's not between one man and one man. Right? It's not it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Marriage is created by God and it's meant to be that way. And sex within marriage, that is part of God's good creation as well. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's always been part of God's plan. There before the fall. God's, God's given his blueprint for marriage in Genesis 2. The fourth thing we see is that men and women are equal but different. Equal but different. We see that they're made of the same stuff. Equal in dignity. Equal in value. But equality doesn't mean identity. There are differences. God spoke to the man, not the woman, making him responsible for their joint obedience. God brought the woman to the man so that he could name her, at least giving him some sort of leadership there. In the one flesh union between the man and his wife, we discover when we reach the book of Ephesians, is, is, is a picture between, of the relationship between Christ and the church. Where Christ serves and sacrifices himself for the church, and the church submits to his loving sacrificial rule. And so equality and differences are actually built in to the creation order. Would you mind, uh, uh, Paul, would you mind closing that door? Ah, oh, thank you. Thanks. Okay. Equality and differences built in the creation order. So we mustn't try and overturn that. On the one hand, by treating women as lesser worth than a man, right, as, as things have tended to be in the past, especially in some parts of the world, this part of the world, or, or on the other hand, by denying the loving, sacrificial male leadership in the home and the church, as tends to be in the present. as a reaction to that. God made us equal, but different. thing that I want us to note from chapter 2 is the picture that we see here of the kingdom of God. It's a prototype. Now, the kingdom of God we know, it's not you can't see those words here, right? but the concept's there. Remember, God is the loving ruler. He's the creator who rules by his word. The man and the woman living together in perfect harmony. People under God's rule. And there they are in God's place. In the Garden of Eden where God has set up for them. They're, they're the elements that make up the kingdom. God's people, God's place, under God's blessing and rule. And that is a pattern that we see over and over again uh, through the scriptures uh, as, a, as a picture of God's kingdom. And we'll see it again when we look at Genesis 12 uh, next week. Now, in chapter 3, this pattern begins to unravel. The serpent tempts the woman by uh, tampering with God's word. In chapter 3, verse 1, the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say that? Well, no, God didn't say that, did he? The woman corrects him, but she adds to God's word, verse 2, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither should you touch it, 
Which is not what God said. Lest you die. The serpent then suggests God's prohibition is not for their good, but for God's selfish purpose. He leads them to doubt God's goodness. Verse 4 and 5. But the serpent said, You will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. God's not got your best interests at heart. Do it your way. Verse 6, when the woman saw the tree was good for food, it was the light of the eye, and the tree was desired for making one wise, she took its fruit and ate. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. See, instead of accepting God's authority, listening to his word, they listened to the serpent. So they wanted to be like God. They wanted to run their lives their way. Make the rules, declare autonomy, to usurp God's place as the one who decides good and evil. And so they sinned. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. That's a bit of a letdown, isn't it? There you've got big promises, your eyes will be opened, great understanding and wisdom and and they knew they were naked. Is that it? Sin, shame. The relationship between the man and the woman is affected, isn't it? The relationship with God is affected. They hide from him. But God still comes to them, but he comes to them in judgment. He calls the man out, says, what's happened? And the man, verse 12, he blames God and he blames his wife. He says, the woman whom you gave me, she ate the fruit of the tree. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. It's a classic male response. Blame everyone else. God asked the woman what she's done. The woman blames the serpent, verse 13. The serpent deceived me and I ate. Man blamed the woman, the woman blamed the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. Now, God doesn't even ask the serpent for his side of the story. He pronounces a curse on the serpent, on the woman, on the man. The ground is cursed because of the man. Work is now frustrating. The man will struggle against nature to survive. You know that work is frustrating. Man and woman will struggle against each other. And even life's most beautiful moment, the birth of a baby, is marred by suffering and pain. Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden. Away from relationship with God. And all their descendants are born outside the garden. In a world of sin and death. And the tree of life would remain out of bounds to sinful people until the curse is finally lifted at the end of the book of Revelation. Humans will die for the wages of sin is death. But you know, there are two things in the story that give us some hope. Two elements of grace. I wonder if you noticed them as we read chapter 3 just now. 
First of all, God was still being merciful to Adam and Eve. Notice what he did for them in verse 21 of chapter 3. The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. See, they try to clothe themselves in these little fig leaves that uh, work really to cover themselves up. Can't deal with shame and sin by yourself. But God made a covering for them. An animal, an animal had to die for that to happen. God provided a sacrifice and a covering. And looking back, we can just begin to see a pattern. Just something there that, 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 that points forward to, to something else. Because the ultimate solution to the problem of sin would be in the sacrifice that God would provide. Much better than our inadequate coverings. But a sacrifice where someone would die to cover our sin. And Jesus would be killed for that to happen. The second thing in the story that gives us a bit of hope is that hint of the serpent crusher. Remember Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. When God is speaking to the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now that could just be saying people kill snakes and snakes bite people. Now, but there's more to it than that, isn't it? See, evil and sin had been introduced by the serpent. He had tempted the woman and led her into sin. But one day, one day, the offspring of the woman would have his revenge. He would bruise the serpent's head. And in doing so, he would suffer the, the bruising of his heel. And again, looking back now, we can see that Jesus is that serpent crusher. He's the one who defeated Satan, who reversed the fall. And who did so by taking a striking blow to himself. By dying on the cross. And those who are in Christ who share that, share that victory with him. But here in this part of the Bible story, that's just a, just a shadowy promise. Can't see how that's going to be fulfilled. But now we look back and we know. Well, chapter 4 opens with, with uh, Eve producing an offspring, Cain. And the question is, okay, is he going to be that serpent crusher? The offspring of the woman? But hardly, he murders his brother. And he's placed under further curse. His descendants are traced through chapter 4, and they culminate in Lamech, a killer and avenger, who starts the practice of bigamy. That's pretty no good down that line, isn't it? Eve has another son, Seth, in verse 25, and his line is traced in chapter 5. And it goes all the way down in chapter 5, to the end of chapter 5, it comes down to Noah. And in Genesis 6, we read that Noah was a righteous man who walked with God. And while the rest of humanity was, was plunged into such evil and immoral behavior, God decides to wipe them out and start again. And God sends the flood to destroy the human race. And when he does that, he saves Noah and his family by telling them to build this big, oak, big boat called an ark. And we read about that in chapter 6 to 9. Now maybe this will be the serpent crusher. But he wasn't, you know. The most important thing about the flood, well, there's two important things about the floods. 
The first thing is that it didn't work. That is, God destroyed everyone and started again with the most righteous person around. And after he'd been saved and given all God's promises, after the flood we read that Noah goes and plants a vineyard, gets drunk on his own wine, and is disgraced by his son. And his descendants are sinful as well. You see, salvation needs to come from the outside, doesn't it? By now we can see that human beings are so affected by sin, the fall has affected us so severely, that we can't do it right ourselves, even if given the chance to start again. Sin's not just a problem with society, it's not just out there causing us to be like that. You get the best person, you start all over again, what happens? Bang, you go straight back into it. It's part of human nature. Now, which is a really big, difficult problem, isn't it? Because the promise to Eve is that the serpent crusher will be the offspring of a woman. It's a problem that's not resolved until Jesus comes. He was born of a woman, and yet without that sinful nature. So the flood's significance, because it's, it, it shows us our desperate need for Jesus. And it shows another important thing. It shows us that judgment and salvation go together. God knows how to judge the world for sin and he knows how to save his people that he's chosen. And happens at the same time. And that sets up a pattern for the rest of the Bible. Judgment, salvation, always together. And nowhere do we see it more clearly than in the cross of Christ. Where God punished sin and yet saved his people through the same, same thing that happens happening. Judgment and salvation together. Always two sides of the same coin. And that's going to be repeated again, time and time again in the Bible. Salvation in the midst of judgment comes from being one of God's people, like Noah's family. In God's place, in this case the ark, under God's rule, which, which was here is expressed in the word that he spoke to Noah and commanded him to do it. Have we seen most clearly the final judgment? where the world will be condemned for sin and those who are in Christ, those who have been forgiven, will be saved. So once again, can I ask you, are you in Christ? Will you be saved from the judgment on the last day? Chapter 10 of Genesis traces the descendants of Noah's three sons. In chapter 11, the story starts again. Humans get together to build a city. A city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Their aim is to make a name for themselves. To prevent themselves being scattered across the world as actually God said they ought to be. They wanted a unity which is a worldly unity. A unity for the sake of their own glory and their own security. You can say in fact that Babel was a counterfeit kingdom of God. They had these, their own people in their own place, not where God said to be, under their own rulership. A society built on building God out. And the story is, this is a good story, God has thrown down high, the tower they think is so big, it's so small that God has got to bend down and go and look at it. 
And God brings judgment upon it. He scatters the people. Doing the exact thing that they're trying to avoid. He confuses their languages. Frustrating their attempts to communicate. Because human attempts to build a city, a united society without God, that is sin at its height. And God would have none of it because God was building another city. A city which the book of Hebrews tells us is without physical foundations. A truly united society of God's people. In God's place, under God's loving rule. And he would start with a man called Abraham, whose genealogy the end of chapter 11 leads to. And so in chapter 12, which we're looking at next week, he would do for Abraham what the people of Babel were trying to do for themselves. He would make Abraham's name great. And as far as the confusion of languages goes, no sign of any reversal of that until Acts chapter 2. After the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Holy Spirit fell upon the disciples. And a miracle happened so that whatever they spoke was heard by the people around them, wherever they came from. Which was a sign that the judgment of Babel was being reversed. The opposite was happening to Babel. Babel people were going to be scattered around the world in judgment. In Acts 2, God's beginning the process of bringing people together under Jesus. Building his kingdom. So what do we learn from Babel? We learn that unity is not intrinsically necessarily good. A lot of us think unity has to be good. It's always good. Not necessarily. It may be. may not be. depends what brings about the unity. What are you uniting around? Unity under God, God's truth, that is good. Unity in building God out for the sake of glory and security, that is not. So before we jump on the bandwagon of unity, including unity between all different groups and denominations and people and races and religions, and God always ask, what is the unity for? Unity in the gospel? Great. Unity in preserving man-made structures and empires? Be careful. May or may not be a good thing. Secondly, when you think about this, Babel, people in Babel building this great tower and thinking how great they were to do it. Perhaps remember that's not to seek glory and security in, in buildings and numbers. That's a warning that every church must consider, mustn't we? Our glory and security is in the city that God is building. A city that's invisible now, but consists of people, everyone in God's kingdom. Earthly buildings are nice, and I'm going to talk to you about a building a bit later on. But they are just there for the sake of convenience. We can do without them. We mustn't glory in them. Furthermore, we mustn't follow the trap of empire building. Right? Even here, we work hard to, to build up smack. Right? But we mustn't do it to make a name for smack, mustn't we? We must do it for the advancement of God's kingdom. Ultimately, it is the kingdom that's important. Not the church, not the denomination, not the Christian organization, not the congregation, not anything else. The kingdom. And finally we're reminded that God is still gathering his people. See, Babylon was that cheap imitation. A mockery 
of the real city that God is building. And he is building his heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, where all who are in Christ will, will be one day. When all the effects of the fall are gone, where there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain, where we will be in the presence of God, where sin will be no more. And our relationship with him and each other is restored. Then Eden is restored. And creation is once again new. And we will be God's people, God's place, under God's blessing and rule. All of the Bible tells us how God gets from that garden to that city. And it starts with one man. man who lived 4,000 years ago. His name was Abraham. And it's his story that we'll be looking at over the next few weeks. Let's stop here and pray.